Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Issues. Before we get there, can we just thank Dusty? A lot of hard work and effort on our prayer series. <laughs> Preached all those weeks. I hope our, our prayer series was a blessing to you, but uh, we're done praying. We're not going to pray anymore. Uh, we're just going to be in the Bible, so stop praying. We're actually going to have wristbands that say, don't pray. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. If we're online, I'm, I'm really just kidding. Uh, hey, uh, I was thinking just yesterday, uh, about a year ago, the world went crazy, right? It was about a year ago right now that everything kind of turned upside down. And um, <clears throat> man, I, I, was, I was thinking about trust issues. Uh, one of the first things that popped into my head was this idea that, man, right at the beginning of the pandemic, you, I don't know if it was true here, but in Dallas, uh, we were told, hey, don't wear a mask. Like, if you're healthy, if, you, if you're not COVID positive, well, you know, just don't wear a mask. You don't need to. Healthy people don't need to wear a mask. And so, you know, go to the grocery store, no mask on. You can go anywhere. Go to church with no mask on. And, and then about a month and a half into the pandemic, everything kind of flip-flopped, right? The, the tune changed, and it was, hey, everyone needs to wear a mask all the time, anywhere you go, even if you go to sleep at night or drive your car, Right? everything flipped really quickly. And we had some trust issues, right? Uh, what, what's, what's true? What isn't true? And, and 2020 was kind of a lesson in trust issues, right? Uh, we had an election last year. We had a lot of things going on last year. Who do we believe? What's true? Uh, where do I get my information from? 2020 was a crash course in who's actually trustworthy. And to be honest, we still don't know. Uh, we, we still don't know if what they're saying on the news is true or isn't true. So we're, we're pretty well-versed in trust issues by this point. And so we're going to take a look in our series called Trust Issues at this little book. It's the second to last book in the Bible. It's called Jude. And Jude is just 25 verses long. It's short, but it's strong, right? Just because it's, it's short doesn't mean it can't pack a punch. You can just ask Jeff, ask Jeff Armstrong if you don't believe me, okay? Um, Jude has a lot going on in just a few verses, and I'm excited that we get to get into it. I think it is the perfect book for our culture today. We live in what uh, I've heard a lot of people call a microwave culture, where we can have anything we want in an instant. It's available to us, right? You can go home and sit down on your couch right now, click the Netflix button on your remote, and boom, you have a plethora of TV options, but not just like one episode. Like we grew up waiting for one episode to appear at a time. You have all the episodes of the entire show, and you can just sit on your couch and call into work for the next few days and watch the whole show straight through, right? Anything you want in an instant. That's the kind of world we live in. And, and because of that, our attention spans have shortened, haven't they? I, I, I caught myself doing this the other day. I was on my phone. I was just trying to read a little bit of news on the Apple News app, and I, I realized I have this tendency. If I click on a news article and there's no video, I just get out of it. 
Like, just show me the video. I don't want to read anything. I just want to watch the video that explains to me what happened, and then I'll, I'll be done. Like, my attention span has gotten that short. I don't like that about me, but maybe you found yourself in a similar position. Our attention spans are shorter than they've ever been. So Jude's a good book for us because in just 25 verses, he'll get his whole message across. We should be able to, as a church, read through the book of Jude a few times together and a few times on our own as we spend some time in it these next few weeks. The first question we need to answer is, who is Jude? Who is Jude? He starts his letter this way. This letter is from Jude, and here's what he says, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. That's how he identifies himself. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, let's jump quickly to, this is Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, okay? Here's uh, some interaction that's going on with Jesus. Then they scoffed, and this is what they're saying about Jesus. He's just the carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and, say it with me, Judas. You're like, what does Judas have to do with this? That's the guy that killed himself. No, no, no. Judas is the long version of our name today, Jude, okay? Judas is the Greek name. Judah is the Hebrew name, and Jude is just the shortened form of that. It's like Robert and Bob, right? Or Jackson and Jack. That's my, my nephew. It's just a shortened version of that name. And so what, what the consensus is in the, in the biblical scholar community is that this Judas right here is Jude who wrote this letter. He is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, there's a few other Judases that we read about in the Scriptures that we know from uh, following Jesus. The first is Judas Iscariot, right? The one who betrays Jesus and ultimately ends up killing himself. There's another Judas uh, within the Twelve, and he is identified as the son of James, Judas the son of James. But that's not the way Jude introduces himself. He says, a slave of Christ and the brother of James. Now, James is Jesus' brother, and we believe that in Matthew 13, Judas is Jude. So, Jude is actually Jesus' half-brother. It begs the question, why doesn't he identify himself that way? Why doesn't he start this book in which he's going to launch into this condemnation of false teachers, and he's going to need an authoritative platform to stand on? Why doesn't he say, listen, I'm, I'm Jesus' half-brother. If anyone knows what's true, I think it would be me. Why doesn't he do that? See, Jude identifies himself in a way that doesn't quite make sense for us. I have a few brothers. One of them was on stage this morning playing guitar. The other will be here next service. And uh, I, I like having brothers. If you have brothers, I, I think you probably know what I mean. It's, it's a good way to grow up, rough and tumble all the time. Uh, if you know my brother Daniel, who was on stage here this morning, you probably know him as a kind, caring guy who would do just about anything for you. Um, what you don't know about Daniel is that in high school, he was a bad dude, okay? Like in a good way, okay? Like bad in a good way, if you know what I'm saying? Um, Daniel, this is not an exaggeration, I promise. This story, none of this story is an exaggeration. Daniel would do 200 push-ups and 200 sit-ups every single night before bed, okay? He was cut, he was fit, he was a lean, mean, fighting machine. He didn't fight people, but okay. Daniel uh, led his team in tackles year after year on the football field. He was a he was a he was a he was a dude. He was a big guy. He was strong, and he was the most feared guy in our high school. Not because he started fights, but because he would end them. And uh, you guys probably don't know this, but all of my siblings uh, we were homeschooled through eighth grade, and then we went to public high school. My first year in public school was my freshman year in high school. That's kind of intimidating. 
I was pretty insecure going into that year. I didn't really know what I was walking into. I mean, my first year of having homework was my freshman year of high school. My first year of hearing a bell that told me to go somewhere else was my freshman year of high school. Lots of things to adjust to that point in your life. And so I was nervous going into it. I didn't know, though, that my brother was the most feared guy in our whole, in our whole school. And let me give you an example. I figured it out pretty quickly because in our high school, which I went to a high school in rural Illinois, a lot like Fort Scott High School right here in town. And we had just a couple of hallways, and at the major intersection of two of them, there was the the big main hallway that stretched the length of the school, and then there was what was called the freshman hallway, where all the freshman lockers were. And there were a lot of classrooms down there, and so that was the busiest area in our school on most days. And um, on one occasion, I was walking to a class, and this this punk kid, his name's John Von Baron, I'm sure you guys know the kind of kid I'm talking about, this punk kid starts a fight right there at the intersection of these hallways. And so he's going after it with this other dude, and everyone, you know, just, here's what happens. No matter what's going on, someone's dancing, someone's fighting, people just form a circle around them, right? And we just like to stand there and watch, and some kid's selling candy bars, like, you know, I'm just kidding. So they're fighting right there, and I see my brother just kind of push through, and again, my brother didn't fight people, and he just walked in, in the middle of the circle, and he grabs these two guys by the, I'm just not a joke, he grabs them by the backs of their shirts right here, and pulls them apart, holds them up like they're little kittens, right? And he's just kind of holding them right here. He says, we're not going to fight. And then he sent John Von Baron, the kid that started the fight. This is not a joke. My brother, a student at this high school, sent another student at the high school to the principal's office. (laughs) You're going to go to Mr. Ward's office right now. And then Daniel just stood there in the hallway like this. So every time John would look back to see if he could get out of it, he just saw my brother standing there. People were afraid. He was a bad dude in a good way. And I learned pretty quick, people weren't going to mess with little old freshman Joel because of what they knew they would face. People weren't allowed to pick on me. He was allowed to pick on me, but other people weren't. I liked having that kind of identity. Hey, you're Daniel's little brother. Okay, I'm not going to mess with you. Jude doesn't identify himself based on who his brother is. Jude doesn't claim privilege by proximity. He doesn't ascend to a place of authority based on his association with Jesus. Jude doesn't establish reliability based on this relationship. No, Jude calls himself a slave of Christ. It's the Greek word doulos, slave or servant, as some of our translations put it. Jude, a slave of Jesus. And this word doulos, it it means to, it's pertaining to a state of being completely controlled by someone or something else. It had complete devotion to that thing. And Jude wants us to know right from the beginning that Jude is a Jesus dude. He wants to be known as a slave to Christ. He's totally sold out to Jesus. He's not concerned with stature or status in the world as it pertains to who his brother is. He's just saying, this is Jesus and I'm his servant. I am his doulos. And doulos extends beyond our English language, beyond our own definition of someone who's just devoted, but doulos extends to this idea of being a delegate of that person. So in the ancient world, if you were a doulos of Caesar, you weren't just totally devoted to Caesar, you were a delegate of him, a representation of him in the world. You would take a decree or something of that nature into a social setting, and it was as if Caesar himself was speaking. That's how a doulos of a person was treated. And that's the kind of introduction that Jude makes for us. He says, I'm writing to all of you who have been called by God the Father who loves you and keeps you 
safe in the care of Jesus Christ. We have these three identifiers. Jude moves from his identity as a slave of Jesus to our identity. Those who are called, loved, and kept. Called, loved, and kept. And the first idea is this, that we are called. It's the Greek word kletos, which comes from the word kaleo, to summon, to call, to encourage, or to, this is an important word, invite. Friends, we were invited into God's family. It was He who called us. I preached a message a few months ago, and I, I talked about this idea that the call is for all. It's God's good initiative that begins our identity as His child. We are called into his family. The second word is this, loved. It's the Greek word agapeo, which comes from the word agape. Agape is probably the most famous Greek word in our church today because of the interaction between Jesus and Peter. After Peter denies Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross, but then there's a beautiful story at the end of the book of John where Jesus gently restores Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter uses these other couple of words that represent the idea of love, but not this agape word. And finally he says, yes, Lord, I agape you. Agape love is this kind of sacrificial, selfless, serving love that holds no priority for self. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Jesus, with no regard for himself, went to the cross on your behalf. We're called, we're loved. And finally, he says, we're kept. We're kept in Christ. It's the Greek word tereo. Tereo. It means to watch over, protect, to guard or keep. I like that idea of guard. That Christ is guarding us right now. There's a lot of us who go through life thinking we need to keep ourselves in check. And certainly there's this idea of maintaining holiness and purity, but it is Jesus himself who is guarding our hearts, watching over us, keeping us for the inheritance that we have one day. Now, our human identities are a culmination of a lot of different things. They don't sound like this. We don't call each other called, loved, and kept, right? Go to work tomorrow and, and, and try to call someone, that, oh, one who was called, one who was loved. You'll be, you'll be laughed out of town. Our human identities are a culmination of geography and biology and sexuality, psychology and society. But Jude doesn't give those kinds of labels to his audience, now, Jude doesn't say this, this is a message that is just for Chiefs fans. Jude doesn't say this is a message just for those who haven't committed any of the big sins. And Jude doesn't say, and this is a critical one for us, church, Jude doesn't say this is a message just for white heterosexual people. Jude informs us that our identity is decided by a destiny. Those who are called, those who are loved, those who are kept. In Christ. Our identity is decided by a destiny, not based on what you've done, but based on what God has done for you. Now, how we see ourselves largely determines what we say about ourselves, doesn't it? If you look at life through the lens of your biggest regret, you will sit in that pit of shame. If you rewind the tape to review the footage of your failure, you will always decide that you're undesirable. And this one is critical for us. If we, if we always tune into the station that states that we should cave to whatever we crave, well, that'll lead us to thinking we are our own masters. We see ourselves as God sees us, called, loved, kept. We realize that our present reality is not eternity. And we can easily forsake the immediate for something that is ultimate. 
Everything in our world today screams at us that we should be our own God. No one knows you like you. Whatever you feel, that's what's right. You should make decisions based on what feels good for you. So we build these identities and we make our decisions based on our own pleasures, preferences, and pride. Jude 3 and 4. Again, there's no chapters here in Jude, so this can be tricky. These, is, these are verses. Jude 3 and 4 go like this. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to His holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude begins right there by saying that this isn't the letter he wanted to write. Most people think Jude wanted to write a letter similar to Paul's work of Romans, something that was theologically robust, something that would be full of doctrine and and helpful to educate the church. And Jude's saying, I wanted to write that letter, but I just couldn't because there's some issues going on. We've got some trust issues in the church, and I need to talk about them with you. I want to work these next couple verses backwards. I want to start with one of the lines in verse 4. Here's what he says. Ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. Some translations say crept in unnoticed. Now, some of us are looking around the room like, who wormed their way in here this morning? Who has it out for me? But I think in our, our world today, this pertains more to philosophies than it does people. There are certain philosophies and ideologies and things like, listen, I don't know if you know this, but everyone in here is a little bit different. We all think a little bit differently. Our upbringings are a little bit different. Our political views are a little bit different. Our perception of reality is a little bit different. And it doesn't make it bad, but it just makes it hard sometimes. What can we agree on? What can we say, this is true, this is what we can trust, this is the kind of people we can be? And friends, there is a, an enemy who wants nothing more than to confuse us, to distort what is true. So if we're not careful, we'll give more credence to what happens outside these walls than what happens within it. And we'll choose to build our lives on a foundation of trust in things that exist out there than the one who calls us to worship him in here. And that's where it gets dangerous. We kind of backdoor these worldly philosophies and ideologies into our gathering here. That can be detrimental to the church. Jude is confronting false teachers who would seek to manipulate the message of the gospel for their own gain. And likely, these are traveling teachers who aren't connected to the local body. They're not concerned with the happenings of the people. They don't know them by name. They just dip in and out. They show up. And they preach their message, and they do a little love offering and get their applause, and then they go off to the next town. And Jude says this is becoming a problem. This is a pandemic right here for the church. And they preached a message that most scholars would say was an early form of Gnosticism, this idea that knowledge supersedes everything else. And it was wrapped in this idea of dualism. Dualism is the belief that the body and the spirit are are distinct, that they're separate. They don't have any interaction with each other. And there were even some forms of Gnostics and dualists who believed that everything physical was evil. 
and that the reason that we had any understanding of God was that little, little pieces of God were put in all of us and we just needed to escape our own bodies and we did that by becoming aware that we were trapped within what was evil. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God created us and it was good. These teachers were encouraging others to run back to the sin that Jesus died to rescue them from. Some translations say that they were making allowance for things that were immoral, things that were sensual. It's the Greek word asogeia. It literally translates to licentiousness. There's a word you don't hear very much. But something that is licentious, it means that they were teaching that God grants license to us to do whatever we want because what happens in our physical bodies doesn't matter in our spiritual body. It's a gross misunderstanding at best and likely an intentional manipulation. Something that they were seeking to teach in order to gain some leverage or to gain some notoriety or financial gain. Their message probably sounded something like this. God loves you. He wants you to be happy. Does that sound familiar? It's what we hear often in our world today. God loves you. He wants you to be happy. And friends, I don't know if I'm the first person to tell you this, but yes, God loves you. Absolutely He does. But His greatest desire for you is not that you would be happy. That you would be His. This message of self-indulgence is a counterfeit gospel. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is verse 9 and 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He says, listen, people who continue to engage in these things, have no place in God's kingdom. And then he makes it a point to say, that's who you were. Past tense. It's not what we're about anymore. We're washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord. Now, in the tone of Jude's condemnation here and what he's specifically going after, there is this decided sexual bent to it. His condemnation of sexual sin. And, and church, has there ever been a more destructive presence in the world than sex outside God's design? We love to say phrases like this, all sin is the same. Everyone's a sinner. All sin is the same. But this isn't actually true. Because Paul will continue in 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Here's what he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There is something distinctly destructive about sexual sin. Sin in general is like playing with matches, but sexual sin is like lighting your house on fire and just sitting inside of it. There are so many issues plaguing our culture today that are downstream from sexual sin that happened decades ago. And 
Friends, don't worry. I know some of us are getting nervous in the room. Don't worry. We're not going to talk about it today. We will talk about it in a few weeks. So we'll get into the nitty-gritty of what that looks like. But what's critical for us to understand today, and here's a falsehood that we perpetuate in our society, is that sexuality is not the fullest expression of our identity. Sexuality is not the fullest expression of our identity. Our world has predicated everything upon sexual preference. We've done this even with grade school children who are having gender reassignment surgeries. It's asinine. It's unthinkable. But it all comes from an appetite for sexual sin. That because long ago we couldn't deny ourselves of fleshly desires, the evolution of that now looks like what our world is facing today. Questions about human sexuality and gender. Confusion for young children. It's all downstream of things that began decades ago. And because we have made sexual pleasure paramount in our culture, we build everything on the identity of sexuality. Friends, when we remove God from His throne as Lord of our lives, we live outside His design. And that is never just an individual decision. Decision. No matter how much we repeat indoctrinating phrases like, well, this is my truth, and I just need to love myself first, or I just need to be true to myself, it's never just about you. You see, your decisions carry ripples throughout all of your relationships. That's how we're wired. It's what humankind is like. We know our sin doesn't stay with us. Sin never sits still. And it's never appropriate to just continue in sin and saying, well, God's grace covers it and we're all sinners. Friends, we have an identity that is anchored in an eternal destiny as people who are called and loved and kept. And all of these counterfeit forms of the gospel, God loves you, He wants you to be happy, do what's best for you, whatever feels right is right. That's not part of God's love for you. It's not part of what He's called you to or loved you for or trying to keep you in. So what do we do? How do we navigate these false ideologies and philosophies that would seek to wreak havoc on us as a people? Well, I like this quote from R.C. Sproul. I think it'll set up this idea well. He says this, How can you know what is counterfeit if you do not know what is genuine? How can you know what is counterfeit if you do not know what is genuine? Friends, the easiest way to get out ahead of these philosophies and ideologies is to be a Bible person who knows the Scriptures, who knows what Jesus is about, who knows what the church has been about for millennia. I don't know if you've seen HBO's docuseries, McMillions. Anyone watch that, McMillions? Okay, again, just the Drakes there in the back. Okay. Maybe third service, we'll have somebody else. McMillions is all about um, what happened with McDonald's Monopoly game. So uh, this Monopoly game began in the mid-80s, and I'm sure we probably all participated in this at some stage. And it ran until about the year 2014, I believe. And early in the, in the early 2000s, there began an FBI investigation into all of the fraudulent things that were happening. Uh, McDonald's had hired a group called Simon Marketing, and there was an individual in their security uh, department who had been figuring out a way to funnel certain game pieces to members of his own family who didn't share his same last name. And so they hadn't picked up on it for a couple of, a couple of years, and so they were winning all of these large cash prizes. 
And the whole thing was just fraudulent from the beginning. Now, admittedly, I haven't finished it yet, so if you want to know the end of the story, ask Amy and Dusty or somebody. But the thing that really struck me from the last episode that I watched is that these game pieces that they're printing in a high-security high facility, right? Um, the high-dollar game pieces, pieces that were $250,000, $500,000, million-dollar prizes, when they print these, they print intentional defects into these game pieces. And so a little piece of a letter would be missing or, or part of the graphic, like the little, little train car on the railroad piece, like would have a wheel uh, missing or, or defective in some way. They would intentionally print these errors so that if someone was trying to print their own piece and claim it as a rightful one, they could easily spot it. Nope, that doesn't have the error we created on purpose. And there were only certain people who knew what these defects were. There were only a few of them, and they were the only ones who knew what was genuine and what was counterfeit. Friends, if we want to know what is genuine, we've got to get in God's Word. Because there are a lot of popular phrases and ideas that are circulated in our culture today that sound good and right and appropriate, and they're things we want to tell our kids and our friends, but they're not actually what Scriptures say. I have a, a few of them with us this morning. Culture would say something like this, just be true to yourself. Be true to yourself, but Scripture would say, actually, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Culture would say, find out what makes you happy. Scripture tells us to find out what pleases God. Culture would tell us, what you do is who you are. Scripture says that who you are decides what you do. Culture says, YOLO, you only live once. So go crazy, be reckless, have a lot of fun. Scripture teaches, yalf, <laughs> you actually live forever. And so what you do matters in this life and the next one. Culture would say, you're special. No one's like you. Scripture actually teaches that you're significant. God has ransomed you back with his love. Culture says that you're the only person who knows you. No one knows what you need except you. But Scripture says that God knit us together in our mother's womb. And He knows us better than we know ourselves. Friends, whatever you make God in your life will end up making you. Whatever you seat on that throne, you will serve. And when we wrap our identity around something other than the deity that is God, We'll serve something lesser, and our lives will crumble and fall apart. I told you I wanted to work these two verses backwards. Let's jump back to, in verse 3, where Jude says, I want you to defend, right? Here's what he says. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all, to all time, to His holy people. I like what the ESV uses. It uses the word contend. I like that word. It has this aggressive feel to it. It has more than just a defensive posture. It feels like we're to go on the offensive as well. It's the Greek word apaganitsumai. I haven't made you say any Greek today. This is the one. Everybody ready? Say apaganitsumai. Bless you. It's where we get our English word agonize. Agonize. So literally, Jude is saying, friends, it should bring agony to our hearts 
when the gospel is manipulated. It should bring agony to our hearts when God's design is diluted because culture and our church suffer when we fail to stand and contend for the faith. I like this quote from the author Kevin DeYoung. He says this, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I think, church, we've become people who are just content with sin rather than those who are contending against it. We do this through the normalization and rationalization of different sinful behaviors and ideas. And I know it's way easier to fall in line than it is to face up to the crowd. It's way easier, honestly, just to pretend as if we live in our own kind of separate little bubble. We don't have to engage with what the world is doing or saying. That's not who God has called us to be. And Jude here would urge us to contend for the faith. To be a people who know what's true and who aren't afraid to stand up for it. But hear me in this. This kind of contention can be done with compassion. Contention isn't cruel. The Bible teaches that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Salt does more than just make something taste better. It it tenderizes. it, It preserves. It makes things more palatable or easier to digest. So our application this morning, I'm going to go somewhere that I I think you probably think I won't. It's not to pick fights in the public square. As people who contend for the faith, it's not to go out and and get on Facebook and be like, the next time she posts something that isn't true, I'm jumping in those comments. That's not what I think Jude would call us to today. I think we need to be people who first contend for the faith in our own hearts and in our own homes. But we would contend for the faith in our own hearts and in our own homes. And so first, in your heart, become so familiar with what is genuine that counterfeit is easy to spot. Number two, steep yourself in Scripture so that you're keenly aware of God's design and desire for you. Number three, stop rationalizing your own sin, making excuses for it, justifying it, telling yourself you deserve it, or that you're not as bad as someone else. Stop normalizing the cultural norms. And contend for your own heart by asking the Lord to convict you of the areas in which you've just been granting yourself license to indulge in whatever it is you desire. Those things aren't in line with your called, loved, and kept identity, an identity that is decided by your destiny. In your own home, contend for the faith by protecting your children from a worldview that prioritizes their own pleasure rather than their pursuit of Jesus. Contend for the faith by not bending your knee to cultural norms because it's easier than wading out into the murky waters of questions your kids bring home from school. Students are on the front lines of a lot of this, parents. And they're confused. And they don't want you to be their friend. They want you to be their dad. They want you to be their mom. They want you to believe what you believe enough to say, this is still true even if it's hard to see right now. This is still what I believe even if everyone else in our world is saying something different. Kids see through lies quicker than most of us. And they'll see right through you if we're not a people who stand up for what we actually know and believe is true. 
Contend for the faith in your own homes by being hyper-vigilant and understanding what your children and students have access to on platforms like Snapchat and TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. Parents, there's a lot that goes on out there. And just because your kid is home doesn't mean they're safe. In fact, they might be in more danger sitting in their room on their phone than they are out with their friends. Got to contend for it. Have to want to. Have to want to fight for their faith. So in our own hearts and in our own homes, let's contend for the faith that we profess. And let's recognize there's this tether between us and Jesus. Christians are freed for. Not freed from anything, we're freed for service. It's how Jude introduces himself and it's how he wants us to now identify ourselves to that we are slaves to Jesus. We're attached to him. It's how he concludes his introduction here in verse 4 that we all have one master and Lord and his name is Jesus. You're not your own master. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it is right. Whatever Jesus says is. He's calling us to obey. Our identity is anchored to an eternal destiny. And let's be people who contend well for that faith. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for a book like Jude that's just honest. There's not a lot of figuring it out. He just says what he means. And we need that. We need that kind of refreshing honesty in our own lives. Would you help us to be honest with ourselves, with our children, with our spouses? Help us to be people who say, you know what? I've been sitting in this for far too long. I've made it okay, and it isn't okay. And I want to be a person who stands, who contends well. And would you help us to do that first in our own hearts and our own homes? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.